Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. And I was thinking, I rarely say this, but I think this is a must-listen interview. I love all the interviews we get. We try and choose guests with exceptional track records and deep thinkers on things. But here's a subject I'm going to do today that I haven't done before, and I'm not seeing done particularly well anywhere else. I'm going to talk to the author of a brand new book called Chip Wars. Dr. Chris Miller has written a book, and it's called The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. And that's the key. This is an area where I think when we talk a lot about the Ukraine and the fighting going on in Ukraine and what's the next battlefield, uh, China versus the West, well, this is where it's taking place. And I don't think that you can have a good grasp of what's going on without understanding this. That's why I'm so excited uh, that Dr. Miller has taken time to chat with us. The book is brilliant. It's had incredible reviews. I enjoyed it. I learned a ton about it, but especially about what the current affairs are all about. I mean, what's Taiwan all about? I, as I say, I could go on and on, but you've got to listen to it. I've also got Ozzy Jurek joining me. He's got, there's three new rules kicking in, one November 30th, uh, January 1st, about real estate that you've got to be aware of, if you're a buyer especially, but anybody involved in that business or thinking about uh, buying a piece of property, you've got to listen into that. Of course, Victor has got uh, to be here with me to sum up what's been going on this wild week, as is Michael Levy. We got the inflation number from the US. We had the midterm elections. We had this incredible volatility within the markets themselves. So much to talk about. I've also got a great stat of the week that deals with one of the other major stories this week. And of course, a quote of the week and a goofy. Oh, the list goes on. I'm glad you're with us. But first, I hope you took a minute of silence Friday to reflect on the sacrifices current and past members of the armed forces have endured to protect our way of life. And when I say way of life, there is nothing that defines our way of life better than our individual freedoms. And just so you know, I want you to know where I'm coming from. I don't think it's enough to just wear a poppy, take a moment of silence to show support and appreciation for the 65,000 who died in World War I, 45,000 World War II, and the hundreds of thousands wounded in the two great wars, plus many others in the armed forces who served in Korea or Afghanistan or peacekeeping keeping missions around the world. I, my point here is it's time to stand up and be counted. Because we've been talking about the escalating assault on our individual freedoms on Money Talks for over a decade. And over the last decade, rights like free speech, the right to a fair trial where the accused is innocent until proven guilty, well, they've become under increasing attack. At the risk of being glib, obviously, many in the self-described woke community clearly don't support free speech or the presumption of innocence. And that's the point I want to bring to your attention. I'm not trying to change anyone's mind about the importance of individual rights. I'm just simply pointing out that there is a major divide in our country between those that support rights, like free speech, and those that don't. And I'll tell you, if you're on the side that wants to protect our individual freedoms, you're clearly losing, as measured by constantly intensifying trend of casually restricting individual freedoms, especially freedom of speech, which Thomas Jefferson called the foundation of all other rights. You know, Remembrance Day ceremonies, yeah, we got the predictable lip service from politicians, others, talking about the sacrifice of our veterans, members of the armed forces, in defense of our rights. But you know what? To me, it rings so hollow when at the same time, they push censorship you know, censorship of ideas or points of view they disagree with. And there's so many examples. I can't think of a time. For example, 
when any political leader actually spoke out, when students on university campuses successfully pressured their university administrations to cancel speakers. And we're talking people like Christy Blatchford, Condoleezza Rice, or when professors were sanctioned or are sanctioned because they challenged today's progressive dogma. Can't think of a cabinet minister, for example, provincial premier, who stood up to the attacks on free speech at public libraries. And I'll tell you, it's troubling to see so many polls finding that a majority of university students support restrictions on speech that they deem harmful or incorrect, or in the prime minister's words, unacceptable. Barely any reaction when students like Ryerson, Jonathan Bradley, publicly warn in quotes, Canadian universities have become places where ideological conformity is expected and diversity of thought is seen as unacceptable. Come on, recently there was very little pushback, and I couldn't think of any from political leaders, when Mark Zuckerberg admitted that Facebook had worked with the FBI to quash what government deemed unacceptable postings. And it happened on Twitter, happened on YouTube, which led to the suppression of truthful information too, on several topics, including COVID. Last week, gosh, we got The Intercept exposing documents that showed Facebook and Twitter closely collaborating with the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI to police what the government determined was disinformation. And the plans are to expand the censorship on topics like the withdrawal from Afghanistan, origins of COVID. And here's the major catch-all, literally in the notes. They want to stop posts that foment distrust in the U.S. government and U.S. financial institutions. Oh, my goodness. July 29th, 2021, our cabinet in Canada issued a technical paper and discussion paper that proposed to appoint a chief censor called the Digital Safety Commissioner. The month before the federal government introduced Bill C-36, that was an act to amend the criminal code that proposed $70,000 fines on individual internet users who post legal content. I'm talking legal content in quotes likely to foment detestation or vilification of an individual or group. My gosh, I look at my own Twitter feed. I could get some of them arrested. I'm not looking to debate the importance of free speech here, by the way. I'm just saying it's clearly under attack. I will say, though, that the erosion of free speech comes at a cost. And that's a long list. And I'll focus, finish here by just talking about the economic costs. As President Barack Obama stated in the commencement speech at Howard University, free speech is critical for a well-functioning economy. George Mason University professor Adam Millsap sums up the relationship between free speech and economic progress in quotes, as an economic leader, we rely on the free exchange of ideas and information for the serendipitous discoveries that increase our standard of living. And because of this, the long-term costs of stifling speech are largely and far greater than commonly recognized. You know, decades earlier, George Bernard Shaw stated, the first condition of progress is the removal of censorship. I mean, Milton Friedman called, you know, the most influential economist of the second half of the 20th century, he argues in his most celebrated work, Capitalism and Freedom, that free exchange of ideas is essential for innovation and economic progress. I could go on, but let me finish with this. This is the University of Michigan economist Mark Perry. He chronicles the difference in economic growth per person of those people living under communist or totalitarian regimes compared with those living with far more individual freedom. In 1991, 
just after the fall of the Berlin Wall, the economic growth per person in North Korea was $700 compared to over $7,600 in South Korea. Between Hungary at $3,550 per person, and what about Austria, $23,510. Between Cuba, $450, Mexico at over $3,600. Cambodia, again under the communists, $150 to Thailand at $2,110. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming that politicians, academics, media commentators, teachers who support some degree of censorship are pushing toward a system that has proven inferior on every measure of the quality of life. You know, lest we forget is the theme on Remembrance Day. So let me finish with a line from the famous poem in Flanders Fields by Canadian John McRae. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep. Well, you know what? Many have broken faith when it comes to free speech and other freedoms our veterans fought and died for, and current members of the armed forces continue to stand ready to defend. My question is, are you going to sit back or join them in the battle that is clearly raging over our freedoms? Hey, just a reminder that we've got the tickets finally on sale for the World Outlook Conference, including the VIP passes. Easy to get. If you go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, you can, of course, sign up, buy your ticket now. Keep in mind, the VIP packages have literally sold out every year. So if you're interested, and I hope you are, I can't think of a more pivotal time to be interested in your own personal finances or what's going on with the economy or the credit markets, etc. Well, you should go on mikesmoneytalks.ca, sign up at that point. Get your ticket. It's February 3rd and 4th at the Bayshore Inn. We're back. I'm loving this live and in person. I look forward to I was talking to Ozzy and Victor about this and Mike Levy. Looking forward to get a chance to meet people. You get a chance to meet some top-notch analysts. I'm looking forward, as you heard last week on the show, Kevin Muir's coming. Uh, we've got Tony Greer coming uh, to it. Uh, we'll be talking with Martin Armstrong, talking with Greg Weldon. I mean, the list is a long one. And of course, Ozzy will be there with Victor and myself. And we'll see. What, I don't even know what Michael's schedule is, but I hope he'll join us. But that's mikesmoneytalks.ca. Click on the events page, get your ticket. I look forward to seeing you there. I want to bring in Mike Levy right now. <laughs> Mike, I'm just laughing because of the incredible volatility in the markets. I mean, of course, we had two things to really deal with, you know, major items. One was the midterms on Tuesday. Then you get your inflation numbers on Thursday. But man, plenty of excuse to sort of up and down and all around. Well, volatility has just been the key of everything that's been going on. But boy, the last couple of days, Mike, just absolutely, we come out of the midterms. Wednesday was a down day with the Dow falling over 600 points. Thursday, I get up, take a look at the markets just after they open. Dow's up by 1,000 points. I mean, that's a 1,600-point swing in just about 24 hours. Well, let me start with the, the midterm impact. And again, it seemed to me there was a bit of a, uh, you know, it was non-definitive, let's say. There were, you know, the red wave from Republicans didn't happen. It was non-definitive. But, uh, you know, give us a little bit of a broader perspective on what happens usually after midterms. Well, first of all, non-definitive really does describe it. And I think that lets everybody take a breath, Michael. I, th I think that's really important. But the stock market historically, and this is something that I went, wow, I never, I never knew that. When the stock market is down the six months before a midterm election, 
then the six months afterwards, historically, markets have gone up. And this is basically every single time since the 60s and every time and every time except twice since the mid 1940s. Well, it is interesting. I mean, Don Vialo smiling somewhere doing, you know, his cyclical analysis and looking at those kind of things, you know, the markets after a presidential election, markets after a midterm. But that is an incredible consistency. You know, I mean, when you look back that many years. And I don't know why I never saw that before, but uh, it just might have been, might be time to just take another look, talk to your advisor and say, let's look at these stats. Maybe there's some entries into this market. Okay, let's shift gears and go to the other story that came out Thursday. And I mean, all eyes were on the inflation number. Uh, you know, I know JP Morgan said if we stay up around that 8.4% mark, they were looking for the market to drop off 5 to 6% immediately. But obviously, the market was pleased. What was it? 7.7% in October. Uh, you know, the market said that's the smallest 12 month increase, by the way, since the January of this year. But Again, that was better than the consensus, and the market had a big smile on their face, I guess, because they're making an assumption that means the Fed won't have to be as aggressive with interest rates. Well, well, they weren't, uh, or they, are, they, they probably won't be, Mike. And in fact, inflation was down a full half a percent, 8.2 to 7.7. Now, you take that and pair it with the historical that we were just talking about, and there's a catalyst that goes right along with the historical. And you, you saw that big, big move in the market, as we just talked about. But I, I've got to tell you, it does take the pressure off a 75 basis point hike in the United States in December, probably now going to be 50 and maybe even slightly lower, maybe even 25 basis points going into next year. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to keep raising interests, but not interest rates, but not with the kind of uh, acceleration they've been doing. 75, sometimes talking about one full percent. And Mike, let me say the Bank of Canada Tiff Macklem, even before this, hinted at exactly the same thing. He's talking about inflation and the uh, balance of risks and under-tightening monetary policy. He says if we don't raise interest rates, enough Canadians will continue to endure high inflation. So, yes, interest rates are going up, but maybe with what's going on now, not with the same velocity. Okay, let me leave you with, by the way, this is just one month, so they'll need to see a little bit better trend, I think, but we'll see. I'm going to leave you with a shocking stat, Mike. This is the rise. You break down the inflation numbers. Well, here's the thing. Food prepared at work or, you know, the school food lunch programs. I, I'm not even going to ask you to guess what the price rise is year over year because it's 95%. Oh, think about that. Gosh. Basically yeah. doubled. And of course, that's because wages went up, maybe transportation goes up. You know, the list is a much broader one of inputs when you get that. But I just thought that was the number that I found amazing. Amazing and just draining the pockets of people who really are on the cusp and all of a sudden they're having to pay so much more. But let me give you a stat here, Mike. Brookfield Asset Management, just a huge company, uh, they... Uh, reported their earnings uh, just uh, midweek, and they were sort of nondescript. Uh, but however, unlike many other companies with the dislocation they see in the financial markets, Brookfield is waiting for opportunities and is sitting with, catch this, 
$125 billion in cash ready to deploy when they see the opportunity. Mike, I've always liked that company for a lot of years or decades, but this is an amazing stat. Yeah, Mike, you know what's interesting about that is, you know, that's a lot of money to deploy into the markets, but they already started on Thursday. Uh, They announced that they're purchasing or trying to purchase, they've made a bid for Origin Energy in Australia. That's their second largest energy company. And it was, I think it was something like 18 million Australian dollars, 12 or billion, I should have said, uh, 18 billion Australian dollars, 12 billion uh, sitting on the sidelines to jump in on the U.S. side of that. So 12 billion U.S., 18 billion Australian for Origin Energy. So making your point, yeah, they're in there doing it. In the meantime, we'll keep an eye on it. But Mike, you go out and have a terrific week. Time now for the quote of the week. And I want to let you know that it's brought to you by Easy Invest's Western Canada Monthly Income Fund. Grow your money. Well, you may have caught it, but this week, Global TV's terrific reporter, Sam Cooper, did a story detailing how Canadian intelligence officials, in a series of briefings and memos, first presented in January, they warned Prime Minister Trudeau and several other cabinet ministers that China had been targeting Canada with a vast campaign of foreign interference, which includes funding for a clandestine network of at least, at least 11 federal candidates who ran in the 2019 election. I mean, their goal is to subvert Canada's democratic process. But come on, it certainly wasn't the first warning by groups like CSIS or the Canadian military into the Communist Party activities in Canada. In fact, I think it's fair to say the warnings have been relentless. As Terry Glavin points out, and he does terrific work on China here, but he was writing in the National Post and said 12 years ago, Richard Fadden, he was the director of the Canada Security Intelligence Services at the time, he warned that at least two provincial cabinet ministers and several municipal politicians were more or less puppets of the People's Republic of China. And by the way, Mr. McFadden was widely criticized for fear-mongering at the time. Well, since then, we've had numerous warnings from CSIS, the military, and the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. They've all warned that China is spying, uh, cybersecurity threats, uh, election interference, but those warnings were ignored. Come on, even the hostage-taking of Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavar, didn't merit a serious rethink of our China policy. Neither did the fact that the RCMP said they were receiving an average of 120 tips daily alleging clandestine activities by the Communist Party agents in Canada. Well, clearly the federal government knew about Chinese interference in elections. I'll give you one more example, thanks to Terry Glavin. By 2019, Beijing's influence has become so normalized in the country that John uh, McCallum, former cabinet minister in the Kretchen government, he was ambassador to China, he openly admitted in the South China Morning Post that that he had been inviting Chinese officials to influence the outcome of the 2019 federal election to the Liberals' advantage. And I might say the briefings that the leaders got said they mentioned both Liberal and Conservative candidates as the beneficiaries. But in this case, no, McAllen saying he was inviting Chinese officials to influence the outcome of the 2019 federal election to the Liberals' advantage. But Chinese interference was not an election issue. I couldn't believe it. In 2019, 2021, not a single question by the media panel in the leaders' debate. And believe me, I could go on and on about the questions asked, or better put, not asked during the leaders' debates. 
But my question is, when will the government or the voting public say it's enough with this interference? And that brings me with the code of the week, which is even more pertinent considering, hey, we've just celebrated Remembrance Day on Friday, honoring the members of our armed forces and the veterans who fought for our freedoms against totalitarian regimes. Well, on October 6th, about a month ago, Chief of Defense Staff General Wayne Iyer, he was testifying to the Common Standing Committee on National Security. He stated in quotes, Russia and China are not just looking at regime survival, but regime expansion. They consider themselves to be at war with the West. They strive to destroy the social cohesion of liberal democracies and the credibility of our own institutions to ensure our model of government is seen as a failure. End of quote. Well, you know what? Given the latest reservation, uh, re- revelations, clearly they're continuing to make progress. As you can tell from our social media and our email blasts and things like that, I am excited about today's topic because I think it's just pivotal in today's world, whether we're talking commercially, whether we're talking military, uh, geopolitical stress, all of that stuff comes back to, uh, it's, it's just fascinating. Dr. Ch- uh, Chris Miller has written a book and a lot of it was just absolutely news to me, uh, talking about chip wars, the chip manufacturing. It's, I call it the must read book, as I've said on the air before. Uh, Chip Wars, the fight for the world's most critical technology. Uh, Chris Miller is an associate professor of international history, where his research focuses on technology, geopolitics, economics, international affairs, and Russia, as well as the author of three other acclaimed books uh, on Russia, especially Plutonomics, which I've read, uh, Power and Money and the Resurgent uh, Russia. But this one, I think, is the capper. I mean, it's grabbed the entire you know, literary world, the sort of academic world, historical world, uh, absolute by the throat. And the reviews have been nothing short of spectacular. And I'm so glad that Dr. Chris Miller takes time to join us here today. Chris, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for having me. Now, the name of the book is, you know, Chip Wars, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Why do you call it the world's most critical technology? Because I think that will be news to a lot of people, especially in a world that we're sort of watching energy shortages uh, grind some parts of society to a halt. Well, most people never really think much about semiconductors or computer chips as they're more commonly known, but we rely on them for almost all aspects of our daily life. It's not just your smartphone or your computer that has chips inside. Almost every device with an on-off switch does, whether it's your dishwasher or a coffee maker or cars, which will have dozens and in some cases hundreds of chips inside of them. So the modern economy can't function without chips. And therefore, threats to the production of chips and our access to the semiconductors we need is a really dire threat uh, to the stability of our economies. And again, it's one of those things that I think people take for granted. They're not aware of it. Uh, You know, I I can't think of anything I don't have a chip in, if you know what I mean, from my everyday life, whether I'm going to watch a television show, you know, on my smart TV. Obviously, today we're using computers. Uh, Everybody listening will use, I I bet we'll use a cell phone, an iPhone or, you know, a Samsung or what have you. And it's the development that the book does such a great job. And I want to say, I, I mean, I will not do justice to this. The book reads like a thriller with a ton of great information. You know, it's absolutely compelling reading. Uh, going back to the history, uh, the people involved in the history and things you'll recognize, you know, Gordon Moore. I'm thinking, I remember Moore's Law when it was introduced. And that's how old I am, as you can see. But uh, as Moore's Law was introduced, you know, the doubling of that sort of processing power and man, that's come to fruition. Remember at the time, it was like, what? You know, 
And give us an example of how far that technology has come. Well, the first chip that was commercially available in the early 1960s had four transistors on it. And transistor is a little electronic circuit that turns on and off that produces the ones and zeros undergirding all software. So the first chip had four transistors. Today, if you buy a new iPhone, the primary chip on the iPhone, which there are actually many chips, has 15 billion transistors on it. So from four to 15 billion is the trajectory over the past 60 years or so. And it's it's that in, uh, increase in the number of transistors per chip that has made computing so powerful today and also so inexpensive that we're able to put it in all manner of devices. Uh, and it's incredible that, I mean, the origins, or not the origins, but the first applications were military. And then, uh, you know, the commercialization, as the book describes. But now we're back to some military concerns, obviously. Uh, I remember the 19, uh, you know, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and, uh, you know, being amazed we were watching it on TV and watching the so-called smart bombs being able to target a single window. And I remember all the technology there, or rather all the weaponry there, shocked people at the time. Like we weren't aware. And again, it, as the book makes clear, it comes back to the chip technology. Uh, like, uh, and again, I, I'm only saying that, you know, because I don't, don't think people appreciate the applications here. Um, whether it's a, a we talk, we've talked a lot on this show about self-driving vehicles, you know, and again, all of that development's going to be thanks to, you know, the processing power. Uh, as I say, the list just goes on. I'm going to get on a plane uh, this week. And oh my gosh, without that power, I don't, you know, we're going down. So I, I guess that's what I'm talking about. But the relevance seems to be much higher, you know, in the supply chain problems, we started to hear, oh, the auto manufacturing can't get chips. Oh, there go, we're going to lay. I remember all the major manufacturing had to shut down manufacturing because they couldn't get computer chips. Mm -hmm. So that, that's right. I mean, again, it's just, it's within that context that people, I mean, your book is so timely that people have sort of finally maybe become a little more aware. And uh, sorry, no, that's, that's absolutely right. And I think the, the supply chain shocks of the last year have uh, helped people understand just how reliant they are on chips. I think what people still don't understand is how reliant they are on chips produced in a very small number of locations. And it surprises yep. most people to know that 90% of the world's most advanced ships are produced in one island, Taiwan, and can't be produced anywhere else in the world. Well, which, of course, makes it so compelling why Taiwan is in the news on almost a daily basis. I mean, earlier this week, we had uh, them scrambling some fighter jets because the, uh, you know, China was sending uh, into their airspace, that kind of stuff. I mean, it's a very hot button topic that I think other than Ukraine war, that's got to be right there on the, on the burner with it. And of course, again, you come back to the chips, as you say. I mean, they've got one major company, uh, TSMC, that seems to you know, just dominate the sophisticated chip world. That's right. And today, Taiwan not only produces 90% of the most advanced processor chips, but it also produces over one third of the new computing power the world adds each year. So we think of tech as being about Silicon Valley or about big Chinese technology companies like Alibaba. But in reality, uh, most of the semiconductors that we're relying on, most of the chips in all sorts of computing systems and data centers come from Taiwan. It's an irreplaceable supplier of the chips we depend on. Well, that's obviously got to up the political tension. You know, I mean, the political stakes that we're involved with right now. Is that what the focus do you think is at, at this point? I mean, they may not come out and say, Nancy Pelosi may not come out and go, well, we're actually worried about that chip manufacturing, especially the most sophisticated chips, if you said. But that's really underlying that 
the tensions there that the Western world cannot allow uh, Chinese interference there? Well, it's a big issue. And as China's military power in East Asia grows, and it's grown pretty steadily over the past several decades, the ability of China to threaten access to Taiwan's uh, chip production has grown alongside it. And the, the irony and the risk is that actually it's been largely Western produced chips, uh, chips that are designed in the U.S. or produced in the U.S. or Japan or Europe or elsewhere that have enabled many of the advances in China's military. And one of the interesting parts of the Russia-Ukraine war that has come to the fore, and this is true for Russia as well as China, is the extent to which uh, adversaries' military systems have our chips inside. So if you look at the open source studies done of Russian missiles that have uh, been uh, captured uh, having, after having landed in Ukraine and take apart their guidance computers, they're full of chips made in the US or South Korea uh, or Taiwan. And until recently, the the Western countries have really struggled to uh, control access of foreign militaries to these ships. Well, and as Chip Wars makes very clear, and the U.S. had a dominant position in this. This is pre-Taiwan or just, you know, as they started to ship some uh, production into Taiwan. But the U.S. was dominant and dominant, it seemed like, for a, a very long time. And that, uh, am I correct in saying it's lost that dominance? It certainly isn't the major producer of chips in the world. And yet that seems to have got both Republican and Democrats seem to be a little more alert to this than they ever were about energy you know, shortages. But uh, they seem a right. little more alert recently, at least in August with the CHIP Act and that kind of stuff. Uh, and I guess I'm just trying to explain to people, and, and this is why they should read the book, because uh, we can't do it justice here, is the world is revolving around this. You know, The stories they're reading and the tensions they're feeling geopolitical are coming back to the importance of chips and supply chains and all the things we've been introduced to more likely, you know, since COVID. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and governments around the world are, are focused now more on semiconductors than at any point in the past uh, decade or two. It's not just the U.S. actually, it's Japan, it's Europe, uh, it's India. All sorts of governments are trying to reduce their reliance on China and Taiwan uh, and to ensure simultaneously that they know that the chips their companies are producing aren't going to uh, foreign governments' militaries. And if you look at the newest round of restrictions the U.S. has placed on the transfer of chip technology to China, it's all about military systems. And, and the challenge is this, is that everyone knows that China is going to produce more ships, more planes, more drones, and more missiles. Uh, than the U.S. and the Western Pacific. And even if you add together the U.S. and Japan and Australia and other countries that have major military presence uh, in Asia, China is going to produce more in quantitative terms. So the question is, how are the U.S. and its friends going to keep their advantage in qualitative terms, keep systems that are more capable uh, than their adversaries? And the way that we've done this in the past is by applying computing power to military systems. So think, for example, what differentiates a fighter jet produced 50 years ago from a fighter jet produced today. Well, it's not that it flies faster. It's not that it's designed that much differently. The key differentiating factor is computing power. It's got smarter computers, smarter sensors, not only in the jet itself, but in all the other systems it's talking with, its munitions, its satellites, it's an entire network on the battlefield. And the US is betting that if it's able to keep its semiconductor advantage vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, it can apply this gap in computing power to military systems and thereby offset China's quantitative advantage with qualitative uh, advantages provided by computing. So that's the key to US strategy today. And it's not just about chips or tech, it's about military power. 
and hence the subtitle of the book, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Uh, I mean, the world is obviously people's top of mind is the geopolitical conflicts going on today. And as you uh, mentioned, alluded to a, a moment ago, uh, you know, a, a lot of people have been wondering why the Russians hadn't been more successful. And, uh, you know, it seems to me from reading Chip Wars that it really comes back to this lack of technology or, the, you know, the lack of sophistication vis-a-vis what the West could apply. I mean, they don't have the weapons and that means they don't have the processing. That's right. That's right. And the Russians have really struggled. They're far behind where the Chinese are in terms of chip making uh, technology. China has made a lot of strides over the past decade in catching up to the cutting edge. It's still behind, um, but it's made some real advances. And one of the advantages that China has is because its electronics industry is so integrated with the rest of the world because smartphones and PCs are largely assembled in China, for example. It's got a lot of leverage over companies to pressure them to transfer technology, whereas Russia never had that. So it's remained far further behind than the Chinese. It is interesting. I mean, with the uh, at the outset, as Chip Wars explains, you know, it was sort of a military issue, you know, uh, dealing with the military. And then the commercialization aspect came into it. And it was really the commercialization, it seems, from reading the book that... Uh, you know, supercharged the advancements, I guess yeah, I, I'd put it that way. And I'm, I'm just fascinated, as you say, as Russia didn't have that, China does have some of those applications, you know, so, uh, you know, that's what becomes so prominent. But how successful can we be? Can the West be, can the US be, can other Western nations be in sort of slowing down that Chinese advance to maintain that technological advantage when it comes to military, especially? Well, the U.S. has been really ramping up its controls on the transfer of chips and also chip making tools to China over the past five or so years. And the challenge that China faces is that although it can design pretty advanced chips in China and it can also produce relatively advanced chips in China, when it produces those chips, China, like every other chip making facility in the world, relies on machine tools that are produced by just a couple of companies in just three countries. The US, Japan, and the Netherlands have basically a monopoly over the machine tools needed to make chips. And these are the most precise machine tools ever made. They're able to move materials at just the atomic level on pieces of silicon, carve uh, tiny trenches or make tiny patterns in uh, semiconductors, which is what you need to make uh, chips with transistors the size of a coronavirus, which is exactly the transistors we rely on in our uh, smartphones or PCs. So this is ultra complex machinery, and it's going to be very, very difficult for China to domesticate its production of this machinery. Uh, And now it can't buy many of these crucial types of machines because of US restrictions. So China faces is a long, expensive slog ahead of it as it tries to find ways to produce domestically machines it used to buy from abroad. Well, an example uh, how that uh, is so important is that, you know, a lot of talk about, you know, I mean, Xi Jinping uh, at the end of their Communist Party Congress talks about Taiwan again and says, you know, don't interfere with us. And somebody there put military action on the table, at least. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying the probability, but that's been alluded to a few times. And I'm thinking, well, the Chinese can't afford not to have Taiwan either. You know, they can't afford to destroy these. They're relying, I mean, when 90% of the most advanced uh, chips are getting made out of Taiwan, I, I'm just wondering, am I wrong on that? I was, I, I've been wondering, because how could the Chinese afford to have any uh, disruption to that aspect too for their economy? Yeah, it's true that a disruption of Taiwan's chip making capabilities would be disastrous in economic terms for China. 
Um, but it's also true that over the past couple of years, China's begun to de-emphasize economic issues relative to its geopolitical interests. And I worry about relying too much on the theory of mutually assured economic destruction providing peace. I think that sounds a little bit too much like Angela Merkel's energy policy, which hasn't worked out very well this year. And when you look at Xi Jinping's focus over the past couple of years, it's been less on the economy, less on growth, and much more on his own political and ideological goals. And so I I hope it's right that China's afraid to attack Taiwan because of the economic costs, but I don't think we should be relying too heavily on that assumption because it looks less sturdy than in the past. Well, and and so much evidence for that in, in terms of, uh, you know, the whole process after Nixon went to China was that we will liberalize with China as they get more, you know, economic development along the lines. We integrate with the World uh, Trade Organization, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think that's proven to be absolutely dead wrong. And uh, I don't have to have a China expertise. You have an expertise in that area and in Russia, of course, but I don't think I have to go too far when I look at they couldn't have cared less what the international reaction was to taking over Hong Kong, you know, against international okay. treaties. I, okay. I think that's a, a huge warning. And it's, it's the kind of stuff that keeps you up at night if you start thinking about this stuff. Well, that's right. I think most of us uh, who don't live in the Asia Pacific region think of Taiwan as an island that's far away and maybe not that important to our daily lives. But the reality is that none of the electronics you rely on uh, could have functional supply chains without Taiwanese produced chips. It would be almost impossible to build a smartphone in the year after uh, a war between China and Taiwan, simply because so many of the chips that smartphones rely on uh, come from Taiwan. And the same thing is true for PCs and data centers and all sorts of household appliances as well, to say nothing of autos and manufacturing in, in other sectors. So we're hugely reliant on Taiwanese produced chips in ways that most of us only dimly understand, but in ways that ought to make all of us very concerned about the, the security risks in the Taiwan Strait. Well, I just can't imagine modern manufacturing without, you know, if there was a problem in that area, let alone innovation. Uh, you know, on this show, we do a little thing, Chris, uh, called the shocking stat. Well, I, I kept on underlining shocking stats in chip wars. And I, I just want to come back to one. I know I'm digressing a little bit, but you had said earlier uh, about it's just not easy. It's just like Canada can't just sit there and go, guess what? We're going to have a chip industry you know, or some other country that's not involved at this point because the manufacturing of the tech or the technology needed, the manufacturing, the precision of the manufacturing, and the one other thing, cost. I was blown away by the cost of, uh, you know, is it uh, ASML, you know, the Netherlands is the only producer of one of the most important pieces of machinery. And then the cost, my jaw dropped. I had to get a, a, a pad on the bottom because we are just talking hundreds of millions of dollars to set up any kind of a facility at this point. Yeah, I and mean, the most yeah. advanced chip making facilities in Taiwan are the most expensive factories in human history. They cost $20 billion a piece. And inside of them, the machine tools you need to make chips are also the most expensive machine tools in human history, costing uh, up to $150 million a piece. So this is the most complex and expensive manufacturing process humans have ever undertaken. Well, the US is looking to shift some of that you know, some of the chip making into its its own borders. And I've seen some of the numbers out of the CHIP Act that was, uh, you know, signed off on in August. And I, I kept coming back to the book and thinking, well, what are you going to build? Half a factory? A third of a factory? You know, I, even though the numbers to us uh, are just astronomical, you know, getting thrown around, but that industry, and I think that's the relevance here, the industry is so expensive to develop that it's, I just not sure to the degree uh, it can have an impact on the geopolitical uh, 
potential tensions here. Yeah, I think that's right. The U.S. is going to spend $39 billion in the next five years or so on incentivizing more chip making in the U.S. And next to a $20 billion price tag for a large scale new advanced facility, that money doesn't go very far. So it will have an impact on the margin. But I think you're right to say that it won't be revolutionary. And in five years time, the whole world will still be quite reliant on Taiwan to produce the most advanced processor chips. But it's, it seems like a, a, a conflict uh, whatever we want to call it, you know, the new Cold War. And there's many people who are calling it World War Three. I mean, like credible academics saying this is where it's going to take place. It's not going to be, you know, hand to hand combat any longer. It's going to be in these kinds of things. And I, I would assume that the, the CHIP Act, uh, the Biden administration got lots of Republican support for it, too, though, is a reflection or an, uh, of that understanding that this that, is where right. this is it. This is it. Yeah. You know, we can't lose this one. That, that's right. And, and losing it is not just about economics or technology. As no. we said, it's about military power, too. Uh, so when you look at the sort of approach being taken at this point, uh, does it give you confidence? It's nice to see it's part of a, an important, you know, it's become an important focus. But past that, uh, you know, what are, our, what are these measures going to do to China? You know, how are, they, how are we stopping? You mentioned you're not allowed to send technology into them, you know, or the machine tools, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, so they're clearly targeting China, targeting China's uh, advancement. They're saying no to that. So how successful will they be or what other areas should they look at? Well, I think part of the, the challenge is going to be restricting the transfer technology to China, which is happening, as you say. But also part of the challenge is going to be to keep Moore's law progressing outside of China, uh, in the U.S., and Japan, and Taiwan, and all the countries that make up the semiconductor supply chain. And that's where we've got to focus our efforts as well, because ultimately, the reason why it's hard to catch up in chips, harder to catch up in almost any other industry, is because progress is moving forward so rapidly. And so part of our task is got to be to keep technological progress moving forward rapidly, which in the process makes it very difficult for adversaries to catch up. Would that take place more at sort of a, a university research sort of level, or will it be the further commercialization? You know, I mean, Apple is the monster user of chips, for example. Uh, and we hear, again, we may not put the stories together. You may hear one off about chip development, or but innovation and manufacturing are not the same thing. Uh, That's right. So, yeah. Yeah. And we... We certainly have a key role that universities and basic science should play, but actually the key challenge here is not the basic science, it's the high volume manufacturing. You know, it's one thing to make one ultra small transistor in a lab, but it's a very different thing to make, make them by the billions and billions with almost perfect accuracy day in and day out. And that's really the hard part about modern chip making. Uh, again, the book does a great job in relaying that. I'm just smiling because uh, I, I you know, it's just something I had not thought about the level, level of perfection required, uh, you know, and right through to the manufacturing finished product, the level of perfection. And of course, that may explain some of the expense of those incredible machines that are getting made in one company only. You know, that's that's the other side to, you know, maybe, maybe if I'm Chinese, I, <laughs> excuse me, try and take them over, you know, because uh, it's just it's a huge mind blowing thing. The numbers are huge. The stakes are bigger. Uh, you know, the innovation, if I catch up and I, by the way, when you mention about, you know, trying to trying to catch up because of course the bar is getting moved every day and through innovation, I feel the same way, uh, you know, trying to learn about it, but wait a second, I think I just learned about two years ago worth, you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm already behind by a mile, uh, when I come to this subject and, uh, that's why I was so appreciative in, in reading the book that 
it helped me get some of that background. Now, some of the history is absolutely fascinating. And I, I, I you know, as I said, it read like, like a novel, like an exciting novel, which I think is a brilliant piece of writing, but full of uh, facts, full of figures, giving me a foundation of which to start thinking about this industry. You know, and I underline that I'm starting thinking about. One of the other things I came away with, though, is like Canada's never going to be a player in this industry. Like you can't play catch up here. Like we have to rely on the U.S., for example. Uh, you know, yeah, I, close I, neighbor. Yeah, I think that's right. For for countries that don't already have a big role, it's very hard to catch up and, and play a big role. Canada does actually have a uh, important chip design uh, industry uh, in and around uh, Toronto. Um, it, it's it's small on the global scale, but it but it is uh, it, it is important. But you know, one of the key things about semiconductors is that no country can do it alone. Uh, the U.S. requires machine tools from Japan and the Netherlands and fabrication services in Taiwan. So there's really uh, no there's really no reason in thinking about any individual country's capabilities because you've got to have access to the entire international supply chain, which goes from Europe to North America to Japan, uh, South Korea and Taiwan. And without all of those countries working together and all of their companies uh, collaborating, you can't produce advanced ships today. Are you optimistic um, uh, about the West being able to maintain its leadership in this area? You know, China, as we say, China will move, but will move farther. And obviously there's now renewed efforts. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not aware of what they did in the past in this regard. It seemed that they were cooperating way too much, you know, with hindsight, I'm saying that. Yeah. But, no, I think, uh, yep. I think you, there have been a lot of, uh, of, of major steps in the past couple of years that make me more optimistic uh, in the West's ability to keep its lead in this technology. It's not guaranteed. Uh, and I think anyone who is uh, complacent uh, has no justification for that complacency. But I think if you look at the trend lines, uh, they do go in, in the West's favor relative to China's. Well, and again, that's why I think the book is so important, because this is a, this is the battlefield. This is where our lives are going to be impacted. And I think we've just over the last couple of years started to get this inkling, inkling that, oh, we don't really have a lot of economics going on here without, you know, the economy grinds to a halt. Oh, the geopolitical tensions are now front and center, supply chain you know, issues. It just seems like the perfect time for the book uh, to come out. Uh, what have you found in terms of, like I say, this has been so brilliantly reviewed. Uh, have you found people come up to you and, you know, you're at Tufts University and they, they sort of the light has gone on thanks to the book? Because that's my goal here. The goal is for the light to go on for people, get a hold of the book and read it because you really have you won't know what's going on other than that. Uh, yeah. But but yes, that's certainly my my goal of the book is to help people understand why this is the most critical technology that they've never really put much thought into before. Well, I got to thank you for doing the book because I found, as I say, it was illuminating, entertaining, which I think is a miracle, by the way, entertaining and, and illuminating. But it's a must understand subject, uh, Chris. It's a, and you've done a brilliant job with Chip Wars uh, in bringing that to people's attention. Uh, you know, it's the world's most critical technology. And I think we all better know about it. And thank you for your efforts in this direction. And I so appreciate you finding time for us in a busy schedule. Well, thanks so much for having me. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. And it's brought to you by Canada's leading gold and silver dealer, Border Gold. I mean, if you're buying or selling precious metals, that's the place to do it because they got the smallest markups in the country. And they have a huge inventory, means you can actually get the product you're buying. But for the shocking stat, you know what? Anytime I can mix celebrities like Tom Brady, the Miami Heat, Steph Curry, 
with a massive, almost unimaginable big loss that takes place almost literally overnight, you know I got a good shocking stat. But that's not all. This week's shocking stat adds in questionable, maybe illegal activity. I'm just thinking, can a Netflix miniseries be far behind? I'm talking about the collapse of FTX, the Cryptocurrency Derivatives Trading Exchange. You may remember them, by the way. They were in the Super Bowl with an ad featuring Larry David, you know, the co-creator of Seinfeld and the Larry David Show. FTX also has $175 million naming rights for the Miami Heats arena. I wonder how that's going to go. They got deals with Major League Baseball, UC Berkeley, and Mercedes Formula One team. Now, I'm not going to go into what caused the company's swift financial meltdown, because there's going to be plenty of postmortem. Sadly, many people are going to lose big money. There'll be many investigations, and I would bet by the SEC, possibly criminal probes. So instead, I just want to bring to your attention this shocking amount of money we're talking about. And let's start at the company's valuations of the different stages when they were raising capital. After former Wall Street trader Sam Bankman-Fried and ex-Google employee Gary Wang founded FTX in 2019, that was, over the next year, the company was valued at $1.2 billion. But their next capital raise, think about this, in July 221, they raised $900 million. That put the value of the company at $18 billion with a B. By October, come on, that's like, what, three, four months later, it raised an additional $420 million from 69 investors. But that included, by the way, the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan Board, Singapore's Temersek. Oh, they had BlackRock involved, Sequoia. But that put the company valuation at $25 billion, $7 billion more from just July. You know, at the time, Joe Taylor, CEO of the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, stated in quotes, in terms of risk profile, FTX trading is probably the lowest risk profile you can have in that everybody else is trading on your platform. That didn't age too well, did it? Unfortunately, by the way, trading on its platform, well, that wasn't all the company was doing. And now the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan is set to lose $95 million. In January this year, though, FTX raised another $400 million, which valued the company at, ah, $32 billion. So let's flash forward to the problems this week. You know, they had the rumor mill exploding, and on November 7th, co-founder Bankman Fried said, FTX is fine. Assets are fine. Uh, the next day, FT, FTX collapsed by 72% as clients actually swamped the exchange with withdrawal requests. Uh, November 9th, Binance decided against pursuing a non-binding agreement to bail out FTX, who said, I guess the numbers they were throwing around is they needed $4, million, $4 billion, billion cash infusion immediately. But now, in the course of just a few shocking days, it is faced with bankruptcy, with a value of, how about zero, not a nothing. $32 billion valuation to nothing in the blink of an eye. As I said, there is going to be a lot more information investigation to come. But as Warren Buffett famously said, only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. Let me bring Ozzy Jurek in right now. Ozzy, a couple things. I mean, there's so many things happening and there's some big changes that are actually going to transpire 
uh, you know, in the next couple of months. And I wanted you, you know, I got questions about them and I wanted you to uh, let me and our audience know about them. And I wanted to start with something we mentioned a while ago, but we didn't get any details of, and that's the Residential Property Flipping Act. So first, give me a brief explanation and then let's talk about what it means. Well, essentially, it was part of the, uh, the federal government's uh, budget uh, uh, some time ago, and it comes into effect uh, on properties that you own after uh, January 1. And the idea is that certain dispositions of residential properties that you own for less than 12 months will now be business income. And the idea there is that you'll be taxed on it. Now, the question is, you buy a residential house, you live in it, sell it within the year, now, what about your capital residential tax exemption? And the worrisome aspect might also be that now it's for one year. What did they're going to make it three years or five years? And oops, there is your tax capital gains exemption exempt. It's gone. Well, a couple of quick things there is one that when we always talked about, uh, you know, the horrible property flippers, there was some like implication that they weren't paying tax. I mean, you'd still pay capital gains right. tax. It was like they're getting away with something. No, they were following the rules and you paid capital gains tax. But as you point out here, Ozzy, now they're going to change those kind of numbers and you're going to be taxed like it's business income. Uh, and once again, we're talking about uh, the disposition. I bought something and I sold it within 12 months. But as you say, right. hey, that's easy to change. <laughs> but it's it's certainly noteworthy. That's a big change. And let me move to another one here for you. Uh, the Land Owner Transparency Act. Uh, let's talk. I love it. We can put a whole bunch of little numbers around it or, or letters. You know, that's the LODA. But it's the Land Trans Owner Transparency Act. Tell me a little bit about that. It was originally brought in to be in effect in November 30th, 2020. And they, this is aimed at parties who don't have a direct ownership or, but have a meaningful relationship or indirect ownership in land. And the idea is that they had extended the deadline to this November 30th. Now, Mike, uh, whether you like it or not, the idea is you must have a legal professional lawyer to file it on your behalf and failing do it on time could be a penalty of $50,000 or 5% of the assessed value. So it behooves all of us sit down with our lawyers and saying, do I have an indirect interest in this? Okay, so that, and that one's November 30th, though. I mean, that's right. we're a few weeks away from that, two weeks away. That's right. So that's another one. So again, you have to file something and... Uh, you know, to, to prove if I'm out to buy a, pre, a piece of property, I've got to file something saying I'm the beneficial owner or whatever it is. That's right. Or I have an interest and they call it uh, information about interest holders, right? And you don't even have to have a direct ownership. And this will be public information, by the way. It is meant to stop fraud and meant to aim again at, uh, at people that flip. But again, just to notice to everyone, if they happen to be buying a piece of property after November 30th, you know, they've got to file this thing. That's a new thing to file, which is going to cost. I mean, yeah. I, I was impressed the last time I bought a piece of property where I went through a notary public, but they were informing me of all those new rules at that time. So here's just another one that gets added on. And it's going to cost buyers a few extra dollars, too, I think. Getting and, the that legal advice. The, and the penalty is steep because they can now say, well, we want you. It was supposed to be 2020. We gave you more time. This is the time. And and that penalty, what? You said five fifty thousand dollar penalty or 5% of the assessed value of the property? Right. That's why wow. it behooves us to read the details. Yeah, and make sure everybody knows that's coming. Okay, 
here's the other one. And you had mentioned this to us a while ago, but now we've gotten, it's going to kick in January 1st. You know, it's that mandatory three-day period called the rescission period. You better tell us what that is and then the implications. Well, the idea is that, you know, again, it was thought about when we had this hot market and people bought without subject clauses. So it's aiming to give the buyer three days to reconsider. And the idea is I make an offer, full price offer is accepted, but now I've still got three days to get out. And, uh, and now there was a lot of arguments about it because, you know, what if I go around and make 10 offers on 10 houses, tie them all up for three days. But that has now been added, a little change added. So the buyer, if he cancels the deal within, uh, in, within the three days, he now has to pay $250 for every $100,000 house uh, as a fee to the owner. You know, so on a million dollar house, it could cost the buyer $2,500 if he wants to get out. But this is a federal law? No, that's a BC law. That's a British Columbia law. That's what I thought. But it's that, you know, I, I, we could talk along about that. We did mention it before that it was coming in. But again, if you're in British Columbia, you know, January 1st, here we go. But also, you know, whenever these things get introduced, Aussie, we know every other province is watching them. You know, and as you say, this was introduced, uh, you know, politicians want to show that they're doing something in a hot market. In this case, it was trying to protect the home buyer. Although I got to tell you, I still shake my head. I'm an adult. I don't need the government to help me with this. You know, if I go out, I do my due diligence and I make a purchase. I literally do not need somebody in government to say, oh, well, you may have made a mistake. I'll either make my mistakes or I won't. But then again, I'm in the minority and and in Canada, I don't need the nanny state. So, uh, <laughs> so let's keep going here. So, as I, as you say, these are all major things that are changing that we have to be aware of as going through. Uh, does anybody? Uh, by the way, the other one I want to just ask. You talked about British Columbia just for a second about that foreign buyers thing, which is coming through the federal government. Is that going to apply to resort towns like Whistler? Because, of course, a lot of the purchases of those kinds of resort properties are done by foreign buyers. You know, like and Canadians do this all the time in Palm Springs or in uh, Palm Beach, Florida. But uh, is this going to apply there, too? Well, the interesting thing is uh, lawyer Spagnolo yesterday put out a letter to his uh, subscribers and made the point there's been no clarity given to us mm -hmm. on that. You know, it, it's, it's understandable the question because Whistler was exempted of the tax to pay, but are they exempted here? Now, for instance, Canmore has advised its residents that the tax does apply, but there's nothing in writing that we have. But the key is this, that if you sell a property and don't uh, add to a foreigner, the penalty is $10,000 and the property can be sold. So it's a serious thing. So if you have anybody that's interested, get them to close before January 1 or face some serious consequences. Well, whatever it is, I mean, as I say, I'm hearing the bureaucracy applaud here. I, I'm getting a headache th thinking of all these changes. But again, good advice there. January 1st, there's a change. If you're selling to a foreign buyer, we don't have all the details at this point. Safe than sorry, you've got to be aware of it. So, uh, yeah. Well, what a cheerful little chat with you today, Ozzy. Thanks very much. And I, I'll tell you, I'll tell people to go to ozbuzz.ca because it's more cheerful than this has been. Have a great week. Thanks, uh, Mike. Uh, I... Uh... Uh, I want to let your buyers to know I got a lot of comments on my on my mentioning my wife and the mud pack. Uh, just remember, this is a very respectful thing that I'm doing. My wife and I are together a very, very long time. And she does, does hilarious things. Like the other day, 
she ran after the <clears throat> after the garbage truck and she said, "Am I too late for the garbage? Am I too late?" And the driver said, "Oh no, jump right in." Yeah. <laughs> That's send all your comments to Aussie Jurek at Ozbuzz.ca. Have a great week. Let's go live to the trading desk now. I've got Victor Adair with me. Victor, I'm sort of imagining you spent uh, a large part of the week in a sweatsuit and a, one of those towels that boxers have out there because there's so much happening. You know, I chatted with Mike, <coughs> excuse me, Mike Levy earlier in the show and just, you know, this sort of uh, awestruck about the kind of volatility, which we've been chronicling, but my goodness, did we ever get a shot of it? Yeah, it seems like lately for the Dow Jones, for instance, to move up or down 500 points in a few minutes is no big deal. It's just kind of routine. But I mean, the big event this week was the CPI data. That was 530 in the morning Pacific time. Um, It wasn't exactly a shocker. It was just kind of we had a modest decline in all of the numbers, but particularly like the year over year number were up 7.7 percent. And the market just has assumed, okay, we've hit peak inflation, and now inflation is going to trend lower. And, you know, uh, (laughs) everybody hit the buy button on the stock market. But that's one of the interesting things is how fast it moved. You know, they give me the number and then presto. That told me there's sort of a huge combination of things going on. But one of them is wishful thinking. Like they were interpreting the data the, to suit themselves because it would be, I mean, I agree that, you know, when you look month to month and the inflation rate is certainly down and you can make a very good case that, you know, the peak inflation is done, uh, you know, we'll have to see because this is with energy still relatively low. I don't want to go on and on about that, but I mean, come on, 85% of the world's looking at recession and energy prices or oil prices still 90 bucks, you know, something like that. Wait till everybody opens up again. That will produce more inflation. But anyways, the market said, hey, that peak inflation thing's over. They're not going to raise rates as much. Uh, You know, it's going to end sooner than I thought. And man, were they willing to pour the money in over that one? Well, within 15 minutes of the data being released, the CP, the the, the Dow was up. The Dow futures, mind you, were up uh, 1,000 points. And that put them up 5,000 points. From the last time we had CPI data back on, I think it was the 13th of October. That's a, a hell of a move. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, the, 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 the move was, it goes like this. I mean, going into the number, I can watch the depth of the market on my quote board. And like there isn't anything there. And as soon as that market, that number prints, the machines, the algos just are all over this market, ripping it this way and that way. So everybody knows, and everybody that's a veteran trader knows it's going to happen. So you back away before the number, and then you try to get in. So anybody that was positioned wrong is getting, you know, dragged out and shot. So, you know, they're trying to get out. And then there's other people that think, holy mackerel, I'm missing out, and they're trying to jump in. So it's such an emotional market. Just to clarify, as you say, someone positioned wrong would be playing the market to go down. And again, if people are completely familiar with that, they might be, in other words, they've shorted stocks. They've sold stocks before they own them. So they short uh, Amazon or something. And then the market starts going against them, like the losses start piling up. And I think your point's just an important one. I don't hear often enough. Those are also the people piling back in. Oh, no, the number's against me. We're buyers now. 
to close out my short position. And uh, I think that's when I see these spikes, I continue to say, I've got to imagine a heck of a lot of it is that kind of thing is repositioning in the market. People in this case thought, hey, we're going down. Uh Oh, we're not. Well, absolutely. But there's another aspect, too. And, you know, I call myself like a macro tourist in that I look at a lot of different macro markets and see how they are related to each other. We've talked before about a key turn date, you know, when a number of key markets all turn or change direction on the same day. So when this CPI data came out, the U.S. dollar fell like a stone. The bond market went straight up. Now, anybody that's trading stocks is also looking at those markets, and that gives them extra, say, emotional fuel to react to the number. So there's, there was just so much happened when that number came out. Yeah, and I'm glad you're pointing that out because, of course, the inflation number is really about uh, interest rates. You know, that's what, the, you know, it's not the inflation on its own. Market players are looking at what that means for interest rates. As you say, the bond market prices went up because people bought to try and lock in the higher yields and the yields drop, you know, uh, in that. So, as you say, all the markets sort of reacting to the same strong piece of news. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, the... The markets are interrelated. That is the currencies, the commodities, the the stock market, the interest rate market. The market is assuming here that because inflation, the peak inflation is behind us, they're assuming that the Fed is now going to start to slow the rate of increase. But the Fed and other central banks are going to continue to be pushing interest rates higher. That hasn't changed, at least in, in terms of market expectations. And that leads us to what could be the next problem, which is people have been saying, perhaps with this really sharp rise in interest rates, the central banks are going to damage the economy. You know, In effect, you know, when you speak like in an aside, you understand the Fed would like to see the unemployment rate go up. Some people are going to lose their jobs. Well, we're getting layoffs and so on. And maybe the next problem is we go into a slowdown or a recession. And then that's good for bonds usually, but not good for stocks. Well, and again, we've got that to reconfirm this week. I think it was the Bank of Montreal came out with a scenario like that. We had Deloitte's about a week ago. Uh, You know, the Bank of Canada certainly alluding to the fact that we've got a slowdown. Uh, We had Ben, uh, sorry, Jerome Powell last week talking about that as a price they're willing to pay. And then, as you say, you start looking at the numbers. Now, they're big names, and maybe that's why it's got so much attention. Uh, You know, Twitter got a lot of focus because that's Elon Musk. That's a free speech issue, but they'll jump on them for anything. But look at Facebook this week, 11,000 layoffs. Look at the rest of that tech sector. So much of it. I mean, we're talking in hundreds of thousands of layoffs. So, you know, as you say, that's right in the mix again. Yeah. So the, the number was the big story on the week. We'll see whether the strength is sustained. I'm a little, I have to say I'm a little skeptical here. Uh, I think we have clearly been in a bear market since the beginning of the year or in the tech tech sector since late last year. And we've had these nasty or or depending what side of the fence you're on, you know, dynamic uh, bear market rallies. I'm just a little bit from Missouri here in terms of whether or not this rally continues. What about the midterms? I want to throw that in quickly because, of course, coming into the week, Everyone was talking about the midterms. That was the dominant thing. Midterms coming on Tuesday. And of course, there was acknowledgement that that inflation number was coming Thursday. But clearly, the markets just sort of had a yawn, relatively speaking, about what went on in the midterms. 
Yeah, uh, I think a yawn would maybe be overstating it. I mean, compared <laughs> to what was expected, you know, the midterms were a non-event. It's certainly overshadowed by CPI. I mean, the, the, the earthquake, as I called it, that we had in crypto land, you know, seemed to have more of a market impact uh, that, than what happened in Washington, D.C. or around the nation with the different governors. And uh, the debate still rages on. Last thing about China, you know, are they opening, not opening? Uh, you know, a full week ago on Friday, we talked about the market anticipating there was going to be some relaxation. Officials came out and said, nah, I don't think so. And then we come to the end of uh, this past week. And despite the rising cases they've got, I think I, I heard on Friday they were at 10,500 or something, you know, in the one day. But again, uh, I think they're looking at their economy too. And there was talk from officials this time that some restrictions would be eased or some approach to the zero COVID would be eased. Yeah, the story that was on the wires, I guess, early Friday morning was that uh, they were going to, um, let's say, be a little less draconian with their mm -hmm. quarantine requirements, which people are taking, again, you know, as, as a step in the right direction to, uh, and why it's a step in the right direction is because China has been seen as being like the buyer of commodities. So of course, you know, the Australian dollar and the other commodity currencies rally on that. Again, you know, I, I'm wondering if the China that we got used to from 2000 until 2020, you know, buyer of all commodities, maybe they're changing too. You know, they've had a lot of leverage in their economy, a lot of problems over there in the real estate sector, and maybe they won't be the huge buyer of commodities. We'll have to see. And that's what markets are all about, Mike. You know, you, you have an idea and you're either right or wrong. To me, making money in the markets is about managing risk, not having the best crystal ball in town. Great stuff as usual, Vic. I want you to go out, have a great week, but I want to remind people also to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. And of course, you can see all the charts that Victor's going to throw up there over the week. And of course, Vic, you go out and have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. You too. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Well, Finance Minister Christia Freeland started the week by giving Global News reporter Mercedes Stevenson an example of how to cut costs that she says both government has to do and, of course, individuals do with the rising cost of living. She said she got together with her family, decided in order to cut costs, they were going to cancel their subscription to Disney Plus. Monthly savings, $13.99. Obviously, contrary to the Prime Minister's view, she clearly doesn't think the budget's going to balance itself. So after the biggest government spending spree in history, and by the way, a huge chunk of it had nothing to do with the pandemic, the finance minister thinks it's time to cut back on government. So we'll see. But what's goofy is that she seems surprised at the outpouring of criticism, given, given numerous polls are telling us that millions of Canadians are facing serious choices, you know, things like groceries and shelter. So canceling Biz Disney Plus is hardly at the same level. And of course, not a surprise, social media users called it insulting, tone deaf, out of touch. But I guess I'm wrong because it clearly was a surprise to the finance minister. Now, I want to give her credit because facing the backlash, she did the right thing. The next day acknowledged that she and other politicians are well paid and live a life of significant privilege. But I do think it's noteworthy that she didn't have the wherewithal to anticipate that backlash from that kind of a remark. But it's very similar to this. Because it comes at a time 
with questions about the $6,000 hotel suite for Queen Elizabeth's funeral by the federal government. Prime Minister still won't say who stayed in it. But didn't anyone in the Prime Minister's office think that would raise some eyebrows? Given there's so many other luxury hotels, by the way, in London at that time at a fraction of the price. But last week, we also got the bill for the Governor General's trip to Dubai. And I have no idea why 45 people were invited for the ride. That's anyone's guess. But we do know they did it in style. You know what the price tag was for that? $1,307,731 all paid for by the taxpayer, including $80,367 in food costs for just the flights, the food eaten while they're flying there and back. That didn't include beverages. Well, that worked out to $218 per meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Come on, that's a heck of a breakfast. I certainly have nothing close to that. Although I hear that it did include, you know, uh, parfaits with cranberry, orange muffins, uh, boursin cheese omelets, sun-dried tomatoes, grilled sausages, that kind of stuff, French crepes. But here's the thing. Let's face it. They would never spend that amount of money themselves on breakfast or lunch, even dinner. That's the attitude, though, that underlies the, uh, the waste of billions of tax dollars. Our money is being spent in a way they would never spend the money themselves. Auditor General outlines it all the time. They had no goals. They had no measures. You know what? No one in this country has ever hired on people to do a renovation without knowing what they were paying, how far along it's getting, what the ultimate cost was. But I wonder if it isn't a reflection of an equally important problem. Because either they understood the public relations nightmare that these kind of expenditures would incur at a time when so many Canadians are struggling. And I think in which case, it reflects a massive disrespect for the public. Or there's another explanation. The finance minister, prime minister, whoever arranged the accommodation, the food, that kind of stuff, are so out of touch that they actually didn't anticipate the backlash. And I suspect that's the case. Because they showed no sign of understanding the struggle that so many people faced with the pandemic restrictions. I saw no sympathy for people losing their job or losing their business. I thought Peggy Noonan, respected columnist of the Wall Street Journal, summed it up well. She said, the professional class of politicians, media people, scientists, and credential chatterers care about business in the abstract, small business bankruptcies. That concerns them. But they have a sense some people will lose their livelihoods. But here's the thing. They have no particular heart for them. And I think that was reflected in spades in their response to the lack of understanding why people would support the truckers' convoy. They don't have to support it. But they should understand why some people did. Because I think it's dangerous to have so little understanding or empathy for the plight of millions of Canadians who suffered far more during the pandemic than any member of parliament or myself included. It wasn't a level playing field. People had it tough. And I'm not sure that some of these things don't reflect our insensitivity to that. Hey, that's all the time we have. And I, I've got to remind you again that we are selling tickets now for the World Outlook Conference, the VIP pass, which is, of course, uh, sells out every year. But it is a chance to come and meet some industry insiders. And we're going to emphasize uh, many things, but we're certainly emphasizing energy this year because I still think it's the linchpin of going forward what's going to happen, including for inflation, your cost of living. But also, you got a chance to talk to people, yeah, in the industry, talk to great analysts. We've got a huge raft of analysts coming 
get a chance to talk to the Money Talks team. I look forward to doing that. Finally, in person again, I'll be saying hallelujah for that, February 3rd and 4th at the Bayshore Inn in Vancouver. In the meantime, I want to invite you again, and I do appreciate I get notes all the time from people saying, I've told my friends and family about joining Money Talks tweets or joining Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, or going to mikesmoneytalks.ca. And you can sign up for our free email blast. As I said, the right word, isn't it? Free. That's right. We send you the latest. I hope you join us on that. In the meantime, I hope you have an absolutely terrific week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.